Hi, I'm Judy Smith, and I'm from Camp Calumet up in Freedom, New Hampshire, and you are listening to the Two Bald Pastors Podcast, connecting real faith with real life. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Hello, and welcome to Two Bald Pastors. I'm Jeff Cinebaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. We are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today we welcome Maria Anderson. She is the transition pastor and developer at St. Ansgar Lutheran Church in Portland, Maine. Welcome. Thank you. How are you today? I'm great. How are you guys? We are doing really well, and, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk a little bit about what you do, um, because we both find it very interesting what is going on in Maine in our synod. And so could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about uh, your call story? Yeah, so I am a Lutheran from Minnesota. I grew up in a small town, a small Swedish town called Lindstrom, just north of the Twin Cities, and am the sixth generation to grow up in my little church in Minnesota. Nice. Wow. So, yeah, I'm very, um, very rooted there. And so church was always a big part of my life. And when I was about 12, I was asked to lead, to sing something at a youth service. And that kind of put into motion... I think why I ended up eventually going to seminary because I not only discovered that I could sing, but also was supported by um, people of all ages to lead with my voice. But I didn't know I wanted to go to seminary until much later in life. Then I went to college and studied social work and sang in the choir and, you know, did music stuff too and ended up doing a program called Lutheran Volunteer Corps after college, which is out in the San Francisco, well, it's all over the country, but I served in the San Francisco Bay Area. And during that year, I worked as a case manager for people who are experiencing homelessness in Berkeley, because I was pretty sure I didn't want to do direct case management in social work, but I wanted to have the opportunity. And it was really during that year and that experience in that work that kind of pushed me to seminary. And I originally started thinking that I would get my MSW and an MDiv, a dual degree program, and mostly get the MDiv for fun. Fun, yep. <laughs> yep. Um, That's cool. Yeah, and but I had a few experiences. One, I had a client that came to my office once a week, and or maybe even three times a week. I saw him very regularly. He was asking me one day, he goes, you know, Maria, there's all these people in my life who care about me, but they all get paid to care about me. And I'm always questioning if I'm ever, if I'm really actually loved. Mm. We had this great conversation in which I didn't talk about my faith, but I was, because I was working for a secular organization, but I said something to him along the lines of, well, I just tend to believe that everybody is just inherently loved because of who they are. And I think his question really stuck with me. And being able to be a pastor and really kind of share that message all the time felt really good to me. The other bigger, actually, instance that happened was that I had this intense situation with a woman who was showing up for dinner. 
And at our women's shelter, when you came to dinner, you had to sign up to do a chore. It was kind of how you gave back. And one woman came and said that she didn't have to do a chore because she always had a meeting right after dinner. And so she was exempt. And I was this young, innocent, gullible woman from Minnesota. And people knew that. And they took advantage of me all the time. So I decided this day I was going to put my foot down and not let people take advantage of me. And we had this really not kind interaction. And then the following Sunday, I was assisting at church serving communion and I served her communion. In her receiving communion from me and me recognizing that we are all around this table and all worthy and all loved the same amount in receiving this gift from God was kind of when the moment when I was like, okay, I think I need to go to seminary for real to be a pastor. Yeah, that was really kind of what did it in for me. It's amazing how powerful communion experiences can be, especially when you are not only on the receiving end, but also on the giving end. Totally. So you spent time in Minnesota growing up. You spent time out in California with Lutheran Volunteer Corps, and now you're here in New England. Talk a little bit about some of the cultures, compare and contrast some of the cultures, especially some of the church cultures that you've experienced during your time in, in different parts of the country. Well, in, you know, in Minnesota, where I grew up, um, I was reflecting about this with some of my friends from high school a few years ago, who none of whom are connected to church anymore. And we were all talking about how everyone in our hometown went to church. Like you just did. It was kind of what you did to show you were a good person and to be involved in your community. And and what I found when I moved to the Bay Area was that people who went to church were really choosing to be there because there was something about it that drew them. And people knew a lot more about Lutheran theology. I don't think I learned much about Lutheran theology until I was in college. Even though I went to confirmation and I listened and I, you know, I was at church all the time as a kid. It didn't make a lot of sense to me until I was in college. So that's what I found in the Bay. And I think the same is true in New England. The other thing I noticed, though, more in Maine that I didn't notice as much in the Bay Area was that a lot of people feel really connected to their church, even if they show up every six weeks. Mm -hmm. Feeling connected to the congregation doesn't always mean people are worshiping here every Sunday. Some, for some people it does. I frankly don't know if that's like a culture change in our larger culture and the way that people are interacting with church and institutions on the whole, or if it's the place or what the thing really is for sure. Yeah, my guess is it's probably a little of each. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, having done seminary in Minnesota and people ask me what it's like there, I my stock answer is there's more Lutherans than people and half of them are Roman Catholic. So that's always <laughs> that's good. That's my stock answer. <laughs> All good folks. I love Minnesota. I like going back to Minnesota, but it's it's definitely a, a different place uh, in the way people interact with how church is for sure. Yeah. Well even I did my internship in North Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. I found in Minneapolis it wasn't it didn't feel that different from the Bay Area in particular, because that's where I had to contrast it with at that time, because I went to seminary in the Bay Area, too, in California, because there were a lot of people my age who weren't at all connected to a church. But the difference was that a lot of a lot of people had more of more knowledge about church. A lot of people grew up church and weren't any more or something than a lot of people I meet out here in Maine. Some like have had no connection their whole lives with a with a church and don't really know much about Christianity or the Bible or anything, which is actually fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It could just be who I'm connecting with too, you know. 
Uh, so, Maria, you came to New England to be the pastor for mission and evangelism at St. Ansgar, um, and a lot of that role was to start something new. You want to just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, St. Ansgar partnered with the National ELCA, like the National Church, and the New England Synod and the main Episcopal diocese to call me part-time at St. Ansgar and then part-time to develop a new something. The description of the grant for proposal for my job actually states to create some sort of intentional community of 6 to 20 people that meet with some sort of intentionality and on some sort of regular basis. The definition is very loose. What I find fascinating about it is so many times we're like, well, we need to start something new. So let's find somebody that can do that. Uh, But what's kind of neat about this is it's a partnering of you have an established group in St. Ansgar and you and then you're starting something new as well. So you're you kind of have your feet in both worlds. Yeah. And then with the ecumenical piece, you've got kind of a, a an even wider partnering. And um, I mean, to me, at least that's the future, the way we should do stuff and probably will do stuff. But uh, yeah, if you want to share a little bit about you know how that's gone or, or things you've learned along the way or things you're doing, I mean, any of that stuff is great. I, I'm sure people would love to hear about it. I didn't go to seminary thinking I wanted to do something new like this. It wasn't never in my brain. It was a part of some what I felt like might be um, options. But I kind of imagined I would be a pastor in a church and then maybe on the side with my friends, I would try to start something new. That seems like it made sense. So I felt comfortable. This call actually felt a lot like a call to me because it was um, it was a little bit outside my comfort, well, a lot outside my comfort zone. But there were many pieces of the puzzle that felt like it was the call for me. A part of that, part of the puzzles, that piece, I guess, was the partnership with St. Ansgar and my ability to have a congregation to kind of keep me grounded and why I'm doing this work and what this is all about, really, and having a place to to worship and to hear the gospel or to preach the gospel on a regular basis to kind of keep me going in this nebulous kind of what what are we doing in this other space. Especially for the first year when I moved here, I started November of 2014. I spent a lot of time just hanging out. (laughs) And I'd never been to Portland before I interviewed at St. Ansgar. So the city was completely new to me. And I just spent a lot of time in public places and going to public events. And I really quickly got over being feeling awkward and asking people to have coffee with me. One of my strategies and tactics was to show up in places where people might not necessarily see pastors very often either. So... I got involved with some community organizing organizations and I showed up at events that were talking about gender and I went to a lot of rallies and protests, particularly when I moved here, there was a lot of rallies and vigils about all of the racial injustice in our country. You know, I just showed up in spaces and that's really kind of how I met people. (laughs) That's great. A conversation that I hear a lot of folks having is when you are a pastor in a public space, mm-hmm. how are you identified or is that something where you go and you wear your clerical collar or do you prefer not to wear your clerical collar? Do you have signs saying, hey, come and pray with me? Or when you approach a new situation like that in a public space, how do you identify yourself or want to be identified? It varies. So when I'm at a rally, I wear my collar. 
I was working with a group last summer to raise the minimum wage in Portland, and I would show up at press conferences and city hall meetings and stuff wearing my collar. So I use that tactic when that feels like it makes sense to me. And when I would sit in coffee shops, I learned really quickly that people go to coffee shops to work. They don't go to coffee shops to randomly meet people who are also there to meet people. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Uh, so I learned one thing was, at, with the help of the other mission developers in the Synod, someone hinted to me to like, you know, go to hang out at coffee shops to get to know the baristas. So I did some of that. All of this also, though, sounds like so creepy, like I'm going to go get to know the baristas. You know, <laughs> that wasn't necessarily like, you know, I, I, I've gotten to know a lot of baristas. None of them are involved in my ministry. Like, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to feel like a local. I mean, that's, I do that too. Yeah. But it's just, uh, it's to feel like, you know, people in town, I think sometimes more than anything. Yeah. And, and some people, there's one guy who's a barista, or he's like, I think a manager at one of the coffee shops I'm at all the time. And every time there's a new employee, he's like, this is Maria. She's a minister in town. <laughs> and I think nice. he's just kind of fascinated by it, you know? And he's also very kind. Plus for people to realize you don't have two heads or something. You're not some crazy person. Right. You're just a normal. Right. <laughs> yeah. But often I just show up and... At, a, at things and people, you know, as you're talking with people, they'll ask you like, oh, are you new to Portland or what do you do? And, and so I just tell them I'm not afraid to, I'm just very honest about it. And generally people look at me, I just don't look like a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm generally in places that people don't see pastors. Like sure. uh, one of the fa my favorite places that I met some people was at a conversation called Disrupting Gender. Um, where we were talking about gender binaries and gender identity. And there was a part in that conversation where we went into small groups and we all decided we should go around the table and introduce ourselves and say why we we're here. And so I, I use those opportunities to say, like, uh, my name is Maria and I'm here because I'm a Lutheran pastor in town. I believe the church is a place where people of all gender identities are welcome. And so I'm, I'm here because of that, you know. And what happened was then the whole rest of the conversation was about people's relationship to church. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Um, or religion. And, and a lot of people being so fascinated that the fact that I was there. And, you know, so it's a part of it is, you know, God's love is so huge. And the church has done a really good job in some places. And and is still working and learning in other places on how to, what it looks like to show and share that. And so I think I, I've learned to just show up in some of the unexpected places. That's awesome. And then how does that um, kind of, just to compare and contrast with your responsibilities at St. Ansgar, I mean, do you feel like you're representing St. Ansgar? Are you there as yourself? Is you, are you, do you feel like you're switching hats or you, is it all one and the same? How does that work for you? It's messy. Generally, people think of me as the pastor at St. Ansgar uh -huh. because it's the easiest way to introduce myself to people. Sure. And people can imagine the building and the church. And, you know, St. Ansgar is a very progressive congregation themselves. And so it's not completely based on what people drive by and see the rainbow flags on our church or they see the church sign that always has something snarky on it. They can get an idea of like, oh, I know that church. I love reading the church sign. Like, I get that comment all the time. <laughs> I'm not that outside the box for St. Ansgar. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. That's, yep. that's great. Well, it's nice that they're able to say that this is you know, that they're not looking at you funny or saying, what are you doing? Or the, those kinds of things that it's part of the DNA of where you are. That's wonderful. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then as I get to know people, explaining the other part of my job happens in various forms and at various timelines in my in my building of relationship with people. There's a young couple, a couple who I've gotten to know. The woman actually grew up in Minnesota, and that's how we connected. We were playing Settlers of Catan at a wine bar. And it was like, oh, you're from Minnesota? And we've known each other for a, a while now and stuff. And she didn't even know about the other part of my job, but she's been participating in it. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. And and she just was like, oh, I guess I didn't realize I was also a part of your job. That's neat. You know, like, so I it made me very aware that there are some people, there are some instances in which I'm not very good at being explicit about what I'm doing or my work. Part of your work is a mission developer. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? A general overview, like the, the process and to become a mission developer and and how that is different from a traditional pastor's role in an established congregation. The process happens that when you're in seminary and you decide you want to become a mission developer or are interested in doing that, you go through a, you have an initial interview with somebody from the synod, and then they recommend whether or not they think you would be a good candidate. So you got kind of endorsed by someone from the synod, and then the, you have another interview that's based on, it's called a behavioral interview, and so they ask you specific questions about um, experiences you've had in the past or part, just kind of parts of your personality trait to see if you're somebody f- for whom developing new ministries is a skill that you kind of naturally hold. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do that process in seminary. I did that process after seminary when I was kind of interest when this call kind of came to be. So I think some spots of the church in our country are really strict about the process having to go a specific way. And other spots like New England are, are less strict because I think there's, um, and I don't, I guess I'm not comparing because I don't really know what's happening in other synods, but I know in our synod in New England, the willingness to experiment and to try something new kind of often is a value that trumps other values as, as far as um, those processes go, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. I know uh, Bishop Hazelwood has tried to nurture that culture, so I'm, yeah. I'm glad to be on the beneficiary uh, side of that, having you here. So, <laughs> yeah, I am too. I feel like I, even in my job, in my call, because my call, a lot of mission developers, then, you know, their their goal is to start a new church or a new worshiping community, and my goal, as I was saying earlier, is different. It's to to create a small community and then potentially a network of small communities that um, are relating to conversations about faith in some way through through gathering or through action. The Synod has done a really good job to support me in not having to follow the, the same process as a lot of the other new starts, yeah. um, which I don't even really know all the details of what that process is because I haven't had to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I was on our synod's mission table for a while, so the, it's a lot of paperwork, um, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of stuff in the box. Even though the whole like, the whole goal is to kind of look outside the box and think of doing new things, the the process of actually starting a new, if you're going to go the line of a congregation, it it it's hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> to say yeah. the least. Yeah, That's, I think your whole concept that you're a, a part of, of kind of network, networking together things that already exist mm-hmm. and creating something new out of that. It just seems like a much more doable approach. I just, I, I like it. I think it's, there's a lot of potential there in just about any, any place we have 
our mission outposts, you know? Yeah. We need to, to look at those things more and more because, you know, reports are coming out about our church, the ELCA, and other churches in general. And, and what we are seeing is an aging church in, in decline. And a number of clergy, especially in the ELCA, are retiring. So it's looking at different models on, on how we do church and, and what are the ways that we can do something new, something, something different. So my, my question to you is, what has been the biggest learning curve in starting something new? And, and as we kind of look at doing something new as, as, a, as a church in general, either as, as congregations or pastors, what are, what are some of the biggest learning curves that you've experienced in the year and a half that you've been doing this? I have really learned the importance of simply trying something, at being invested in the trying of the thing rather than the outcome of the thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And kind of inherent in that is allowing yourself to kind of put yourself out there um, to be vulnerable. That's, that's, I think, been the hardest piece of this and the thing I continually learn on like a pretty regular basis <laughs> is that it's, it, you know, if you come up with an idea like, well, my, maybe this could work, actually starting to implement it is really scary because, you know, you're, you're putting yourself out there. You're putting an idea you have in the world. And if people don't, I don't know, it's just, it's, um, well, I think it's a fear of rejection of saying, yeah. well, this is my idea. And some ideas, I think, we put so much of ourselves into that uh -huh. it becomes very personal to us. So when it doesn't work or when we're rejected, then we take that personally instead of having the mindset of, oh, here's an idea. Yes, I'm going to put a lot of work into it, so hopefully it's successful. But if it doesn't work, well, we'll try something else, some, some different direction or a different idea. The measure of success has been also a huge learning curve in this mm. process. Yeah, like how you measure or define what success looks like. Right. Because that's, it's, it's not, I mean, in, in my work currently, success isn't having 30 people worshiping together on a regular basis. You know, like success is standing in the caucus line on Sunday after church and saying hi to like 50 people because I've somehow managed to connect with that many, like just a wide array of people in our city, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, and I have to, I have to remember on days when I sit in the church office by myself or go to a coffee shop and don't talk to anybody, <laughs> I have to remember because I, well, especially when I do those things and I feel like, Oh, I've been so productive because I sat and looked at a computer all day long. <laughs> I have to remember that that's actually necessarily success in my work. That's been another big learning curve is, is balancing my own, sense of success and failure and legitimizing the work that's a challenge for me yeah uh, and just the other the other piece of it so your role has kind of transitioned now as well right since yeah. your, your colleague has retired you've become now the transitional pastor uh-huh so what is that work like and how does that play into the other things you're trying to do yeah that work is also an interesting learning curve for me St. Ansgar we're still kind of in a phase of grieving the loss of Pastor Bill. I think we're moving, we're, you know, grieving in a different way now and kind of moving into, there's, there's always been people who are also like hopeful and excited even in the midst of that grief. We just launched the congregational assessment tool to 
for have people um, fill out. And just on Sunday at church, someone during the announcements, <laughs> we have a um, was talking about how they didn't like the survey because it was very like canned answers, and that they hope there's some conversation. The the transition process has also been a balance for me of figuring out how invested to be, <laughs> because it's really right. the, it's the process for the congregation. Yep. I think it's a really incredible opportunity for them to really think deeply about mission and vision and where they see themselves going in the future and what does it mean to be church and what does it mean for this particular community to be church in this particular city. And there's, you know, and there's a wide range of ideas about what this process will look like. You know, there's the people who are like, okay, we fill out this survey and then that tells us who we need as our next pastor. And then we put a call committee together and we hire another pastor. Mm -hmm. And my, my thing is, well, we do this survey. It gives us some information. We spend a big chunk of time talking and thinking and reflecting and dreaming and praying and um, visioning. And then we figure out who do we need to lead us to be this, to do this vision or, right, you know, so and it's a different place to stand when you're one of the pastors on the staff, so to speak, than when you're the person that's shepherding that process when it may not end up being you in the end. I mean, the reason I'm a transition pastor, not an interim pastor, is because it leaves the option to call me there. Right. But it's also, you know, it's so it's it's a it's a really um, I feel like I'm constantly walking on a thin wire of wanting everything to go well for them and also trying to figure out what is going to be best for me in my call and, and in my personal life and what's going to be, what will end up being best for them and who they need to lead them into what happens next. And so essentially I'm trying to focus on loving, loving, loving the people and, you know, preaching the gospel when in the midst of it all. <laughs> and it's, and I think that visioning process is, is critical for the congregation. And I applaud you for sticking to that and pushing the people of St. Ansgar to go in that direction because it's going to be it's going to make a difference on on the Absolutely. success or the failure of the the next pastor and for someone to come into that congregation knowing that conversation has happened and that people are on board with it it's not something that that pastor is going to have to create but to mold maybe a little bit into their personal style but to really kind of take off running with the congregation and do, to do really good work. Yeah, it's really been a fun process of putting the congregation really back into the hands of the people in a different way. Not that it wasn't before, but people are really stepping up and taking on leadership in new and different ways. And it's really exciting. And so there's, I think, some more ownership around this is our congregation. Maria, as a young adult working with young adults, what do you think a generally older congregation can do to better connect with new people in younger generations? My thoughts are that are to be yourself. Rather than trying a lot of like gimmicks or programs, I think that if you're being the church, if you're sharing the love of God, and if you're genuinely and honestly loving people, even if you don't understand their uh, background or their gender identity or their political views or why they have piercings or tattoos or you don't enjoy their children being loud, like just figuring out how to love them <laughs> and be yourself. <laughs> I just, I know as a, as a millennial myself, I just really 
value my relationships with people of all different generations, like really young people and really old people and everywhere in between. I think that that's the beauty of what the church has to offer. So yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, it's a place where it's one of few places where people of all generations are intentionally gathering in our world. But even as a church in our history, we have we, we've really kind of emphasized age segregation. Um, and, and one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast recently is intergenerational faith formation and, and how important it is to have the, the first grader with the retiree sitting yeah. together talking about their faith and their life experiences and learning from each other to see, you know, faith through the eyes of a child and to, for the child to learn about the importance of of life and faith and experiences that, that a retiree can offer and everybody in between. Yeah, I just, I think it's tempting as the church to try to sell something or to be something in particular in order to attract younger people. And I think, I mean, I'll speak for myself as a younger person that I can tell when people are advertising to me and I'm uninterested in it. Right, <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, me too when I'm 40. Yeah. <laughs> Like you just, you want to be able to be you and not what um, people think that you want, you know? So that's, I mean, and even at St. Anne's, St. Anne's is a generally older congregation. And, you know, some of the, one of my favorite parts of my job is going to sewing group on every other Wednesday with the 70 and 80 year old women because they're funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they have great stories. I mean, we sit around the lunch table and I do communion with them before we eat lunch. And, you know, I'll often read something from the Bible and then I'm ask, ask them to share something based on that. And I I learn so much about them and about myself and about what it means to be a person of faith. And I so that's why I guess I say when be yourself. I mean, remember that we all have gifts to share and... Yeah, I don't know. Provide space for that connection to happen, maybe, is what the church can do. Yeah, and how about on the other side? So you've t- you've spoken with a lot of people that aren't involved in church through the, the ways that you're connecting with people. I mean, I suppose there's a whole group of people that have no church experience, and maybe that's a whole other topic. But people that, um, really of any age, that have church experience but have kind of decided that that's kind of not for me now. What What kind of insights have you learned from them? The thing I hear most commonly from people is that they don't want to be told what to think. That tells me a f- I mean that tells me a few things. One, I think there's misconceptions about what being a member of a church is or what, you know, like being faithful is because yeah. I've never experienced the church to tell me what I have to think, but I maybe have been lucky in that. And I also think it says something about there not being enough honesty and room for people to express and experience questions and doubt. And that could be equally the person not feeling like there's room for it, or it could really be that there's not room for it. You know, that I think is a part of, that's a part of what I've learned. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people I've met who are still connected to church or feel like that in some way, it's just not the biggest priority or something. Who, because I've met a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, we'd love to come by your church sometime. And I think, I mean, I don't know if that's something people say to pastors or if that's a genuine response or maybe somewhere in between. 
But I think there are a number of people who, well, I don't know, I didn't speak for them really, but I think there's something about right, it's right. just not a big enough priority at the time, you know, and Sunday morning, it kind of like comes in the middle of your weekend and maybe you like to go out of town or you like to sleep in because you can't at other times. What I, what you are saying, and I hear as well, you know, I love to come to check out church or even folks who, you know, are, are loosely connected to the church saying, oh, I need to get to church more often. And I think the intention is there. But then, like you said, it, where is the priority? And then if something comes up, it's just easy to say, well, that I, I don't need to do that right now. I'll do it some other time because church is always going to be there for me. And it's just finding a way to, I think, say, when I say make it a priority, that sounds bad, but it's really kind of make it, make it a priority for folks to say, no, I really, this is something that I really want to be a part of, that I need to be a part of, and figuring out how to make it easily accessible for folks, but also really meaningful uh, for folks as well. I think, too, there's so much pull now. Like, when I grew up in Minnesota, not that long ago, I mean, in the 90s, the they didn't plan, um, Wednesday nights there wasn't any sports and there weren't weekend sports things and activities and i think that that has also just changed so much or maybe it's always oh, been no, that it way has, it has yeah yeah there and there's just so much for people to be involved in there's so much and one sunday so as a in this transition i've committed to being at saint anne's gar three sundays a month and then the other one or two sundays of the month i either preach in a congregation around the synod to talk about my work or I go worship somewhere else to see what other people are doing and for the mission development part of my work. So one Sunday morning, I went to another church, um, a new church in Portland and I got up and I went to the gym and then I, you know, got some coffee and I went to church and I, um, when I was at the gym, I was like, there were so many people there. And my thought was, I don't know why I need to convince people that they shouldn't be exercising on Sunday morning. <laughs> right, right. You know, like people are are doing good things for themselves. I mean, also I have reasons why it's good to be at church on Sunday morning too, but I just it was an interesting thing to be like, I don't know that I could actually argue with anyone in this gym as to why they should be at church instead of here. Right. I don't that's interesting. I've never actually done this, but for years I've wondered if it would make sense to send teams of people out on like the sports fields and basically just send them out to talk to people, not to say, why aren't you in church, but just to say, Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I know. When I first started, I was like, maybe I should go to brunch one Sunday a month and just see what other people do on Sunday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> right. I church. Right. Right. Oh, right. Oh, church. I don't know. Well, here I, I, I'm coaching my son's uh, flag football team and there are almost 500 kids signed up to play football flag football in this league and then you add the parents and volunteers and coaches and, and everybody and all the games happen on Sunday and yeah. our games are not until three or four in the afternoon but they start at eight o'clock in the morning and go all day and some of my families in the congregation they have two or three kids on two or three different teams and and I know where they're going to be on Sunday morning for, from now until the end of June um, yeah. and and that's where that's where the action is happening for for a lot of people in our community. Yeah. yeah, and I think the part of that is, okay, we can either just keep continually trying to resist that or saying it's bad, or we yeah. can or we can adapt. 
I mean, yep. that's the, you know, we, I mean, maybe a big part of why we see church decline is we're trying to perpetuate a system that is no longer part of people's regular schedules. Yeah. I don't have an answer for it either, but at the same time, you know, I don't think it's a messaging problem. I mean, I think people could use some good news in their lives and we've got some to share. I think that's more pertinent than probably ever, right? you know, mm-hmm. but maybe it's the packaging. I, <laughs> it's, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think about that all the time, how even just like, I don't, well, just me doing my normal life, like going to the grocery store or, you know, I run into people. Actually, this happened to me this week, actually. I ran into somebody I met at a volunteer thing and um, we had connected and tried to get coffee a few times, but then she and her partner were going to have a foster child and the child arrived like right after I met her. And so she their world like blew up and I just ran into her. This was like six or seven months ago. I just ran into her at the grocery store and she was like, my partner has been wanting to talk with a young pastor. And I told her that it should be you. And now that I'm seeing you, I think, you know, but like how that is also a part of this work in a way. And we're, you know, so trying to figure out how to make church, not only something that's on Sunday morning, but just a, it's like a, yep. you know, being a disciple is a life a life thing, you know, and then, and then also mixed in there having intentional space to hear the good news. Well, Jeff and I were actually talking a little bit earlier just about the accessibility of tools that we have at our fingertips to let the, the word known, let the gospel known out into the, into the world, and how can we as a church make use of those tools mm-hmm. uh, to, to our benefit that doesn't take away from the Sunday morning experience, but only enhances our availability to connect with other people as well as the people in our congregation on a deeper level. It's a question that we need to be talking about more, and, and I'm so thankful that there are folks like you that are taking the time to experiment in doing church in a different way, that not necessarily it's only connecting with people in the building, but also going where folks are and just being who you are and saying, hey, yeah, I may not look like a pastor, but I am one. <laughs> yeah. And I got something to share for you, you know. So yeah. it's great. So what kind of hopes do you have for the church in the future? I know we all have some. I think my biggest hope for the future of the church is that we continue to do what we've set out to do from the beginning, that we continue to tell and live the story of God's radical and confusing and mysterious and expansive and giant love <laughs> for the whole world. And I don't think the church has to look any particular way in order for that to happen. Awesome. That's my hope. I was going to say awesome, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good elevator speech. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Yep. I think it's it's easy to get caught up, for me anyway, to be like, my hope for the church is that, you know, and to think about, like, what the church will look like and what the church will sound like and what the how the church will meet and that kind of thing. And I think right. I've really realized that I don't actually care about those kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do, but that's like not, it's not actually the, the point, you know, or maybe it is. I don't, that's not true either. Cause it is the point, but. But we don't want to get lost in the details of what it looks like, but I think it's, I think you're right. It, it, it's a, it's a feeling. It's, it's uh, an experience that people have and, and the mode of, of that experience is going to have to change in some way, um, and it still can be called church. I mean, we're, we're still working on a model that has been around for 
hundreds of years in the way that we do church, but we are kind of now experimenting and realizing we can't do the same as have done for the last hundred years or so. Um, yeah. It needs to look a little different. and Because um, people live differently. I mean, we yeah. don't live yeah. in, in multi-generational families in the same town anymore. I mean, you just take that one element alone, it just changes the way church goes. And, um, right. you know, our churches are basically designed to support that model. Well, Maria, what are some ways people can connect with you? Um, you can connect with me uh, via Facebook. Maria Anderson is my name. And... I think I'm easy to find. There's also, you can like the St. Ansgar Facebook page, and you can also like a Facebook page called Arise Portland, which is uh, when I first moved here, a way, something I created to try to figure out how to have more of an online presence, and I'm still figuring out exactly how to use that and what that means and looks like, but that's kind of the easiest ways to figure out what I'm up to. Um, there's the links to the Arise Portland page to a blog that I write on when I remember <laughs> or when there's something really pertinent to be said. And how about your favorite uh, coffee hangout place where you know all the baristas and they know oh. you? Yeah, so you could find me either at Black Cat Coffee on Stevens Avenue or at Coffee by Design on Diamond Street. Um, those are kind of the two main places that I hang out. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Maria. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you guys. And I want to thank you, all the podcast listeners, for joining us in this conversation with Maria. We hope that you have had some insight into uh, doing new things in your context, your community, your church, and the openness of, of doing those things to be able to connect with more and more people um, so they, too, can hear the message of the gospel. And... If you want to connect with Jeff and I, you can find us online at twobaldpastors.com or on Facebook, facebook.com backslash twobaldpastors. Once again, I'm Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. Thank you for joining us, and have a blessed day. Bye. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. I, I mean, I think my biggest learning and I think the thing that's I'm most excited to tell people about is that people is the thing about people not being told what to think. Yeah, um, yeah. good stuff. I, I think that that's I don't think the church does that, but I think it's there's a, a real understanding out there that the church does. Maybe some churches do that, I should say. But, yeah. um, I think the reality is that there are some churches that do that. And being the Lutheran church, we do things a little bit differently in that we yeah. don't tell people what to think, and, and we do have an open table where everyone is welcome, and there's so many other churches that's, that do have limits on who they welcome and who they invite in and, and let do uh, certain things, and, and there are churches that say, no, you need to think and act this way, because if you don't, you're going to hell.